If there are places you've been, I know many of you have traveled to a lot of places over the years, whether through uh, military experience or whatever it is, and I suspect that there are places that come to your mind and you think, man, pictures just what? Don't do it justice. I look at these things, I have them seared into my mind, and I just can't even explain how beautiful it was. Jody and I, for a season in our lives, were endeavoring to go into church planting, uh, specifically to the country of Australia, and uh, we were there together as a family once. I had the opportunity to go a second time, and uh, it is everything that it's made out to be in terms of how beautiful it is and how amazing it is as a country. Uh, God had other plans for us, but the first time we went there, the our hosts took us uh, to a variety of places. We were uh, in the Sydney area mostly, and so, of course, saw the, the big coat hanger bridge and the opera house and all the kind of standard landmarks. But they took us also to a place called the Blue Mountains, which I don't entirely know how to describe it, except it would be like the Grand Canyon, except if it was covered in eucalyptus trees. So it's pretty amazing and uh, almost a haze from the the eucalyptus that's there, you know, and they have all the really cool animals, right? Kangaroos and koalas and all that fun stuff. Um, we were walking along one day and I saw, is it cockatiel? What's the big white one with the little crown looking thing on his head? I said to the, said to the guy, what are they doing up there? He said, well, they live there. <laughs> they just fly naturally around. I thought, oh, I've only ever seen them in a pet store. But uh, it's, it, it's an amazing place. And there are pictures of that. And that was, good night, 20, 30, 25 years ago. It was a long time back. And, and still, those images are not hard for me to call up because they were seared into our memories. There was, it was a unique time for us emotionally, and you know if there's emotion connected to something, it usually is a little more strongly embedded in your thinking. I want you to know that this passage of Scripture that we're going to read and study today was an event like that for the children of Israel, except times 10. We're going to do our best to understand the sense of what's happening in Exodus 19 today, but this is one of those experiences that you can't write about it and really help to understand the weight of what happened. So we're going to do our best, though. We're going to go through this whole chapter and talk about meeting God on the mountain. The children of Israel have come. They've been traveling. They've been working their way along, and they've faced a few struggles and difficulties, and now they got water out of a rock just recently, you know, and all this kind of stuff that's happening, and they're, they're ready. It's time for them to move on, and they come to this Mountain. So let me just read the first nine verses of Exodus 19. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of Egypt, so three months, I guess that would be, right? On that day, they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain. While Moses went up to God. Now, in this section of Scripture, there appear to be three trips of Moses up to the mountain and back. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus shall you say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, 
You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my people. You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. I'm going to stop actually there. This is a unique occasion, and I want to notice several things about it. This first section of it, I think, is talking about God's purpose for his people. And he's going to make that clear as he talks with them. But the first thing he does is not talk about his people. The first thing he does as he describes his purpose for them is share with them a testament to his faithfulness. You saw what I did to them. Now, it's not been that long, but as we've already seen, their memories fade, and we've talked about that before, right? Our memory fades not just due to age, but due to inactivity, right? We don't think about these things so much, and so they fade from view. But I want you to notice something else about this particular spot. Because back when God was busy calling Moses to say, I want you to go to Egypt and I want you to bring my people out. And I want you to lead them while I, by my mighty hand, free them from the Egyptians. He said, but I will be with you and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt... You shall serve God on this mountain. God did exactly what he promised. When you bring the people of Israel out, in case you need to remember who it was that brought you here, you're going to serve God right here on this mountain. And now, just a few months after that whole event, here they are at that mountain where God revealed himself to Moses and where he is about to spectacularly reveal himself to his people. So it's God fulfilling his promise. It's also God caring for his people because it's a really big deal to God that he cares for his people. When Moses is writing his song about this event, not too long before he dies and God buries him and the people of Israel go on into the land and all of that that happens in Joshua. In Deuteronomy 39, he's, he's singing a song about it, and here's what he says, but the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted heritage. He found him in a desert land, and in the howling waste of the wilderness, he encircled him. He cared for him. He kept him as the apple of his eyes, talking about the children of Israel. The Lord alone guided him, excuse me, like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions. The Lord alone guided him, that is Jacob, the people of Israel. No foreign God was with them. I'm told, I tried to research it and didn't find a lot of information about eagles, but apparently they grow up pretty quickly, partly because their parents don't let them not do that. And at some point in time, the parents kind of kick them out of the nest and 
literally. <laughs> and their nests are pretty high up, as you may have noticed if you've seen them. And so if they don't fly well right away, I'm told that they swoop down under and bear them up under them to keep them from falling and hurting themselves. God is caring for his people. He is showing his tender compassion for his people. So I would ask you, what has God done for you? It was important as they are meeting God at the mountain, as there's going to be this incredible opportunity to worship, that God describes who he is and what he has done for his people. And over the next couple of weeks, we're going to talk about what we know of as the Ten Commandments. Now God is laying out the guidelines. This is how you should behave yourself in my presence. And so I would ask you, what has God done for you to bring you here, where you are right here, right now? It's really good to remember. God gave the children of Israel memorials all the time. Remember when they came up out of the Red Sea, they built a memorial. When they come up out of the Jordan River uh, to go into the land of Canaan, they're going to build a memorial. They're going to have things of, along the way that they're going to be able to... And they always, he always says to them, this is so that when your children in time to come say, what is that for? You can tell them. It reminds us of what God did here and here and here. I think it's a healthy thing to stop and go back and remember. We're so used to being cared for that sometimes we get cared for and we immediately start looking for the next time that we're going to be cared for. But it's really good, especially when there are hard times, to look back and remember that God has cared for us. Has he freed you from the bondage of sin? Did he save you? Has he guided you in your life? Listen, I know sometimes that guidance comes in a rather circuitous route, right? We're, we're going around or we're hitting speed bumps or, man, it seems like we don't know what's around the next bend. But God guides us. And as we look back over our life, as we begin to think about the bigger picture of what God has done, it's really useful to help build our background and our foundation of trust. Ah, I see what God was doing. And sometimes we don't see what he was doing, right? But we see that he carried us through a time that we didn't understand what he was doing. And honestly, we still don't. But we know to trust him because there have been other times that he's carried us through. They're building a background of understanding... God has saved you. He's guided you. He's brought you through difficulty. He's brought you out and is lifting you up and he's drawing you close to himself. That's God's history with you. If you don't have a history with God or you don't think you do or you have never trusted in Jesus as your only hope of salvation, listen, I promise you, if you are sitting here or you're listening to do this uh, on a live stream or in a video, I promise you God has brought you here to this moment because he has cared enough about you to get you where you can hear the truth about who he is. 
So listen closely because God's going to reveal himself. And he moves on to give a description of his intentions for his people. They'd been brought out with a purpose, not just to get them out of Egypt, but with an intention, with a purpose. He had discussed discussed with them, had described for them who he was. Now he's describing for them who they are. They weren't randomly just brought out so they could hang out in the desert. There are a couple of things that are true of them. We read these verses before, but it says, Now therefore, if you'll indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, verse 5 says, You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you shall speak. They were people who would come from the world. God would take them out from all of the rest of the nations to be his treasured possession. Listen, I want to take you to someplace else in the Old Testament to help you understand just how intimate that was. In the book of 1 Chronicles in chapter 29, they're singing a song, they're celebrating the temple is being built, or is going to be built, they're getting ready, and David is getting ready and giving Solomon the best foundation so that when he builds the temple, it can be amazing, and all of this stuff, and everybody's coming, and they're giving, and they're being faithful, and David is giving. He's giving out of the king's treasury, out of the basically the government coffers. He's saying, we're going to build this temple. It's going to be incredible. But he goes a little bit beyond that, and he says this, Moreover, in addition to all that I've provided for the holy house, I have a treasure of my own gold and silver. And because of my devotion to the house of my God, I give it to the house of my God. My own. This is not stuff that I oversee because I'm the king. This is my personal treasure. God says to the children of Israel, you are my treasured possession. Not just, you belong to me, I redeemed you, so I own you. That's certainly true. But you are my treasured possession. Precious to me. Personal, prized possession. And not because they deserved it. Not because... They were something special on their own. No, no, God said the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted heritage. He found him in a desert land, right? Did we read? This is different than what I read. I need Deuteronomy 7. Is that up there? I can go and find it. No, not there. All right, never mind. It's talking about how God loved his people, and he says it wasn't because you were more in number than anybody else. In fact, you were the smallest among the nations, but it was because I loved you. Purely because God said, I love those people. They are my treasured possession. So they were from the world, but they were also for the world. You will be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. 
That began all the way back with Abraham in chapter 12 of Genesis, where God reminded him, you are going to have land and descendants, and I'm going to bless you, and in you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. From the beginning of God's covenantal relationship with the children of Israel, with their forefather Abraham, God said, you are going to be for the nations. You're going to be a light to the nations. It said that throughout the Old Testament. Jesus even made a comment that referred to salvation being from the Jews, not because they offered it to people, but because throughout the Old Testament history, they continued to have this covenantal relationship, which was being expanded to everybody. God wanted them from the world, and he wanted them for the world. Some of you are noticing similar words in that passage of Scripture to a, a verse in the New Testament, and it's from 1 Peter, where it talks about us and says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. See, if you're a follower of Christ... The attitude of God toward his people here at Mount Sinai is his attitude toward you. You are his treasured possession. You have a, a little kid and they have some particular thing that they just love. They carry with them everywhere because it's very precious to them. What happens if you try and take it? It's not pretty, right? We are God's treasured possession, special possession, and we are priests and king. Who are we? One writer said it this way, there may be times when we don't feel very precious. We struggle to make it from one day to the next. We're weighed down by on-the-job stress, or we spend all our time at home with small children, or we never quite seem to succeed in business. We get discouraged by conflicts and difficulties. We struggle with illness and loneliness, but even when we seem to have it all together, it seems there are times we are unfulfilled and we are unsatisfied. But God has made us a people from the world for his own possession and for the world as a kingdom of priests, a holy nation with a purpose, with an intention. The rest of 1 Peter uh, says that verse says that you may proclaim the excellencies of God to those who are around you, that you may express to other people how great God is. I love how that song ends that we sang, right? Sing with me how great is our God. That's why God has put us here. He's brought us from the world as his own special treasured possession, and he has made us for the world. Secondly, now they are about to experience the presence of God, and so they have to be prepared. Preparation was really, really important. Let me read beginning in verse 10. The Lord said to Moses, go to the people, consecrate them today and tomorrow. 
Let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. The, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people, and you shall set limits for all the people all around, saying, take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but you shall stone him or shoot him. <laughs> Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. Get ready. You're about to meet with God. Because there is something significant. There is something dramatically important about meeting with God. I know that in our past history, the way that we have uh, been uh, approaching God has been extremely formal, and, and we have moved from that to a, a more informal approach to worship. I totally get it. My father is home in heaven with the Lord, and I'm sure by now forgives me that I wear jeans a lot to church, but... <laughs> That never, ever, ever happened when I was a kid. You had Sunday clothes, and then you had clothes for the other six days of the week, right? What bothers me is not that we have more casual dress or that our music is more casual or whatever. What bothers me a little bit is we have let that seep into our hearts. So we're a bit too casual when we approach God. I suspect, perhaps not exactly, but wanting a user-friendly God may not be the way to recognize who he truly is. Here's what I would envision at, at the drive-through of what we might call Circumference Church. Welcome to Circumference Church, where staying at the edges is all we expect. May I take your order, please? Yeah, sure. Can I have two Pentateuch meals? But I don't want any Leviticus on there. That's, that's a little hard to digest. And uh, could I have a prophecy pack, please? And uh, how about two epistle salads? But please hold the conviction. To drink? Well, I would love a large drink of grace and maybe a gospel light. I don't know. I can't imagine, you know, that's ever going to really happen. But don't you feel a little bit of that tension? This picture, get ready. Don't let there be any distractions. Wash your clothes thoroughly. Make sure you are completely ready because I am coming down on the mountain and we are going to meet together. So take special precautions. Fence the mountain off. Do not come and touch the mountain. Everybody's curious, right? Everybody wants to see God. We would love to be able to do that. But he's reminding his people, you cannot. He even told Moses, not too far down the road here, Moses said, let me see your glory. And God said, uh-uh, 
a man cannot see me and live. So God is protecting his people by saying, fence the mountain, and if anybody breaks through, kill them. That really doesn't sound compassionate. But can we remember? They're going to die anyway. They cannot go and see God. Now, getting shot, of course, we imagine a, a gun, which they didn't have, so they're going to shoot them with an arrow, which I don't think is as quick as a gun, unless you're really good with it. Or stone them to death. Even an animal. Do not breach the boundaries. It was that important that they prepare to meet with God. So we want to meet with God. What did the psalmist say was the way you do that? Who shall ascend to the holy hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. Who gets to see God? Those whose lives and heart are cleansed. Symbolically, they are washing their clothes, refraining from anything that might be a distraction to understanding I'm about to meet with God. And then they get to see his presence. Beginning in verse 16. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Now, Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke. Oh, excuse me, I'm skipping. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Imagine this crowd of people. Now, Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. At the sound of the trumpet, as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people lest they break through to the Lord to look and many of them perish. <laughs> Let also the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, Set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. We already took care of that. And God said, Go down and come up, bringing Aaron and the people, but do not let the priest and the people break through. I know you put up the fences, but let them know, again, do not break through. So Moses went down to the people and told them. There are several things that are true about this situation. In verse 16, we realize it was a fearful thing. There was trembling involved. They were so scared. Are you fans of uh, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe and all of those things? When uh, the kids are learning about Aslan, who is representative of Christ. One of them says, well, well can, can we come and see him? Mrs. Beaver, 
says, if there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Lucy said, then he isn't safe? Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. Fascinating description of the eternal God of the universe. Of course he's not safe. He's fearsome. And all the people trembled. And it's, it's awesome. Verse 17 begins to describe this picture of the smoke because God has come down on the mountain in fire. All this incredible picture. Remember Isaiah 6 when when uh, Isaiah has a vision and he's in the presence of God. And he's understanding for the first time who God really is. And he just falls on his knees because the whole place is shaking because of the presence of God and smoke fills the temple. And his immediate reaction is to cry out, Woe is me! I am Undone, I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. All the while, as he's watching, here are these cherubim flying around, shouting, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. His reaction is the same that ours would be were we to encounter that kind of setting. It's awesome to be in the presence of God. And it was as if the closer they got to the mountain, the more they realized how far away from God they were. The closer they got to the picture of what was happening on this mountain with the smoke and all of that, the further away it seemed. The more they understood his imminence, his personal nature and connection to them, the more they recognized his transcendence, that he's so great and above them. And it was dangerous. Do not break through. Let me say it again, right? As, as if God is saying to Moses, listen, go down and remind them again, do not break through. It is too dangerous for you. Are we, are we getting the picture of what it is to be in the presence of God? Mortals cannot survive it because God is so great and so awesome and so holy, so other than us. And we, no matter how sinful we may be, we are all sinful. And so we cannot be in the presence of the awesome, fearful Holy God. We would be like the children of Israel. But can I tell you that we have access to God? I have really battled in my spirit with, Lord, please let me describe this in an awesome enough way that we get the point. 
that we don't deserve it any more than the children of Israel did. We, apart from Christ, should tremble with fear. One of the great sermons of a much earlier generation was preached by Jonathan Edwards. The title of it was Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And it described them as being on the precipice of a cliff and the flames of hell were below and they were like spiders dangling from a spider's thread. And he just gave all this incredible picture. It said that people were gripping the, the pews in front of them in the church so tightly that there were marks from their fingernails. They were terrified. I don't think we understand what it is to come into the presence of God not clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Ephesians describes us as without hope and without God. That's our natural condition. But Ephesians reminds us that we who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So as I begin to wrap up, for all of us who have trusted in Jesus, I hope there's a great sense of relief this morning. I get to be close to this God that we've described. And for those who have never come to Christ, never come to God through Jesus, through faith in the gospel and all of that, I'll explain that all in a minute. I hope, I want to leave you in the tension of you cannot come to God. He is terrifying, except through Jesus. So this is what the writer of the Hebrews says to describe the difference you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. It's talking about this situation. For they could not endure the order that was given. Even if a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you've come to Mount Zion, always picturing God's holy hill, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to, the, to God, the judge of all, and the spirits, to the spirits of all the righteous who were made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. They were about to step into what we understand as theologians, the Mosaic Covenant. Here's how you, endure, you enjoy the blessings of God, and if you do not do this, then you will not experience his blessing. You will experience curses. We have a whole new covenant. We come to God through Jesus God hasn't changed. He's still awesome. Were we to stand in his presence apart from Christ, it would be terrifying. It would mean death. We cannot be in the presence of God as sinful people. But God has chosen for his treasured possession to give you the opportunity to be one who can draw near. 
And so, I recognize that I'm a sinner. I recognize that I don't have clean hands or a pure heart. I acknowledge that I stand before a God who is so perfectly holy that I can't even look at him without dying on the spot. I come to that God and I turn from my sin. I repent of my sin. And I believe the gospel. What's the gospel? That Jesus, God himself, God the Son, came here to earth. He lived a perfect life that no matter how hard I try, I never could have lived, even if I were aware of it. And we're going to find out more about that in the next couple of weeks when we look at the Ten Commandments. Just ten. Out of the 613 that are in the Old Testament, we can't even keep one of the big ones, let alone the little detailed ones. I know I can't live a perfect life, but Jesus did. Fulfilled the law, and then died on the cross, suffered, died, paying the penalty for sin, was buried, and on the third day came back to life again. I need perfect righteousness to stand before God. Otherwise, I'm excluded by the fence of my sin. I can't even touch the mountain or I die. But if I will repent of my sin, if I will believe in the gospel and I will receive Jesus, the Bible describes me as being clothed in his righteousness. And then, then I can draw near to God. Then I can be rightly related to God. So, a couple of thoughts to take with you. Come to Christ. If you're here today, if you're listening uh, to me by way of our live stream or on the video later, come to Jesus. You have no hope outside of him. I know that sounds really exclusive. The reason for that is that's what Jesus said is true. It is exclusive. There are not a multitude of ways to get to God. There is one way. We're not all climbing up different sides of the same mountain. If you don't come through Jesus, you will find the fence at the bottom of the mountain and you don't get to come through. Jesus said, I am the door. By me, if anyone enters, he will be saved. So come to Jesus. If you have never repented of your sin, believed in the gospel and received Christ, man, let today be the day. You can stop being afraid of God. And if that's never happened to you and you're not being afraid of God, you should be. Because God will stand in judgment over you. If you're a follower of Christ, I hope your heart right now is just so soft and encouraged that God has done for you what you could never have accomplished on your own. He's made you righteous in his sight, in his estimation. So come to Christ. Secondly, exalt the greatness and holiness of God. Spend a little time this afternoon. Just spend some time in prayer. Read through this passage again. Think through the reality of who God is. What an incredible thing it is that he would grant you the privilege of being in his presence. If we don't see it as a privilege, it's because we don't recognize how incredibly awesome he is. And then 
Lastly, draw near to God. We get to do that, right? James, James said to his readers, in fact, if you draw near to God, he'll draw near to you. He's talking to people who are followers of Christ, of course. Draw near to God. You don't have to be afraid anymore. It's an incredible thing that we get to be rightly related to God. Enjoy his presence all the time. Not just when we show up at church. Man, I hope, I hope your heart is stirred a bit today. I left out a few things I was going to talk about because there just was too much. But, man, my heart is just so softened toward my heavenly Father today. I hope yours is as well. Listen, I'm going to pray, and uh, the team's going to come up, and we're going to close in a song, and then our benediction, our, our prayer team will be down here at the front. Man, maybe you want to come this morning and pray and talk to God, get some encouragement from them. Maybe you're here and have never trusted in Christ and realize for the first time today you ought to be scared in that kind of setting. You ought to be terrified. Whatever it is, you come and pray. And we're going to sing and... Uh, then we're going to close with our benediction. Father in heaven, thank you for who you are. Thank you that the awesome, only God that created all that is, including us, is willing to reveal himself to mankind. And Lord, as we've gotten just a glimmer of what that's like. It sets us back a bit on our heels to think about how awesome and terrifying you are. But oh God, I'm so grateful this morning for Jesus who came and lived according to your holy standard, who made it possible for us to be rightly related to you if we will receive him and what he accomplished for us through his death and burial and resurrection. So God, I pray that our our hearts and our minds will be stirred and encouraged today and that you would be pleased with the condition of our hearts as we leave this place. We exalt you today and we thank you for your grace through Jesus. Amen.